Hello, everyone. This is Fire Chief Paul Dow with Albuquerque Fire Rescue. Now, this podcast is designed to bring you helpful training and best practices and some additional resources that you can access from anywhere. So thank you for joining us and enjoy today's episode. One, two, rescue five, engine five, seven, eight. Rescue five, engine five, seven, eight. Respond out to 500 Louisiana Boulevard Northeast. It's going to be a Preston Place rehab. Responding out to a 72-year-old male, not conscious, not breathing. It's going to be in the lobby. Nine, echo one. Engine five, rescue five, seven, eight. Princeton Place Rehab, 500 Louisiana Boulevard Northeast. Nine, echo one in the lobby. Good afternoon, AFR. This is the B-Shift 78, Clint Anderson here. I'm joined this afternoon with Kevin Ferrando, our C-Shift 78, and another paramedic extraordinaire, Mr. Jeff Rossetti, Station 5C. We're joining you this afternoon, or we're uh, entertaining everyone with a cardiac arrest discussion. We're going to talk about... uh, really just the, the nuts and bolts of the cardiac arrest guidelines that we have set out by Dr. Pruitt. And uh, again, I've brought this company so that hopefully between the three of us, we can encompass uh, all the expectations as well as, in essence, uh, how a cardiac arrest should be run with an Albuquerque fire rescue. So again, having the experience coming out of Albuquerque's infamous Southeast uh, from Mr. Ferrando, Mr. Rossetti, and myself should have enough combined experience to be able to uh, get you guys some good knowledge here. We're going to start off here at the outset just talking about our ECMO program. We're not going to go into extreme detail, but we're just going to uh, reemphasize the uh, the criteria for ECMO, the availability, and uh, what may apply and not apply right now in this uh, current COVID-19 debacle we find ourselves in. Kevin, do you want to comment on the uh, the ECMO criteria real quick? Sure. Um, so the way we have our ECMO call-out decided, it starts with the alarm room, and they're really the kind of the cornerstone of this. They uh, ask the questions that sets up whether this is going to be uh, a candidate for ECMO and if this is going to generate the dispatch required for that. So some of the questions they ask, it's an inclusion criteria that we're looking for. So ages 18 to 75 preferably a witness to rest, but we're kind of gotten a little bit more lax on that. Bystander CPR, and you know, then at this point, we're gonna start getting these, this, this machine rolling, the ECMO truck fired up, so we'll actually do a separate dispatch that gets the ECMO truck, which is stored at station three, activated. Once that's, that's one step of it. The other step is clearly you know, the initial dispatch, which got that first crew responding to this patient. So that's gonna be as business as usual. Our uh, first arriving unit will get there, assess, you know, kind of re-evaluate the inclusion criteria, and then they'll start just going down the normal ACLS protocol, write down the algorithms, and then, you know, when ECMO does show up, it kind of, we turn everything a little bit over. It, it slows down, so to speak. The docs start doing their doctor thing, where they really start getting this patient set up in a semi-sterile environment in a truck that we have dedicated for this procedure. It's pretty fascinating, it's very coordinated. So far we haven't had what we, we've done, what, three Clint, I think now field three or four. Mm-hmm. And right. you know, unfortunately we haven't had any of these people who've had a good recovery. Uh, we have got them to ICUs. Unfortunately, I don't think that um, any has made it past four days or so in an ICU while being on an ECMO machine at the hospital. But that's not to say that it's not going to happen. We 
we're looking for these people who are in that refractory V-fib who we can really change. A lot of the ones that we've, we've had are the only ones we've had right now. Either that was probably a longer downtime than we suspected or the medical condition that, that, that generated their cardiac arrest was not reversible. So I know a couple PEs and I think, I'm not sure what the other one was, but it was just, unfortunately, it, the outcomes were, were not as what we were hoping for. Just to, to jump off of that, and we'll, we'll chime in later about uh, the effectiveness of ventilation, oxygenation, and trying to avoid that anoxic injury in our patients. But is ECMO available right now during this quote-unquote healthcare crisis? Or... Yeah, as of, as of right now, our ECMO call-out is on a standby. So we're not going to be doing any field cannulation. So that not to say that you can't take a patient who does start fitting this criteria to UNMH for ECMO procedure. You know, we're really trying to keep this 35-minute from collapse to cannulation time. So if we have a patient who's on the outer outskirts of the city that just is not going to be within that timeline, it may not be beneficial to try to initiate that transport. And that's a tough decision to make. They're, the docs are still at UNM and they still are doing the procedure, but they're just not doing it in the field. Sure. And I think all that being said, I, I wouldn't want any of our rescue lieutenants or any of our personnel period to, to hesitate to call us while we're inbound because you guys are the first ones on scene, especially at these outlying stations. To get, to get our two cents, because if you have that, what we like to refer to as a spidey sense in our super scientific jargon, if you have that feeling that this is that patient and you feel like you need to transport early, sell us on that story, get the MSEP online early. But uh, yeah, don't hesitate to reach out to your seven eights. Appreciate that there, uh, Captain Ferrando. I'm gonna move over to Lieutenant Rossetti now. Let's just say you respond to, hypothetically speaking, 500 Louisiana and uh, you know, Princeton Place, which never happens. For a cardiac arrest, you know, 56-year-old male, who knows how many comorbidities, what have you. Last seen five a, minutes ago. Yeah, yeah, last seen, quote unquote again, five minutes ago. So it's a cardiac arrest dispatch. You arrive, and uh, I just wanna get in your words, uh, in the field response, your expectations, and how your cardiac arrest plays out. All right, so I think um, talking about ECMO was a good platform to kind of build off of as far as how we operate, um, specifically because uh, the, the way we do things now uh, with, the, with the pit crew that we, that we talk about continuously, the implementation of the Lucas device, all these things have led us to the point of this, this having successful outcomes with this ECMO and, and with our patients. So it's kind of been a building of sorts to kind of get to the point where we're at now. So to go into that, so the pit crew procedure, you know, so we walk, we walk into this, you know, this particular situation, maybe at 500 Louisiana. And generally, we're hoping to get some, some information. But while this information is being attained, you know, it's critical that we get our crews prepared for the situation, right? So I think this specific Code Blue episode didn't start now or didn't even just start two minutes ago. This started with preparation a day, a week, a year ago. Um, and how your crews perform in that situation um, really dictates how the code is going to operate from there. So, you know, going into this pit crew thing and having everybody kind of in a position that they understand, having your crew know their role in, in these operations is critical. For me, you know, my expectation initially is I'm going to find out kind of what's going on, right? Why, why is this situation the way it is right now? What led to this situation and can we identify a timeline 
while keeping these ECMO criteria in the back of my mind. Because how, how we operate from that point of patient contact will determine whether, you know, we get off scene with this patient, as Captain Ferrano was talking about in that 35-minute mark, or are we staying there and digging in to really try to get this moving before the ECMO folks get there? Or just are we going to work this code into its entirety? So you arrive on scene here, uh, you have your engine crew and you and your rescue driver with you. Who gets assigned to what? And is there a certain succession of events? And so going back to that, with the, um, we don't always have the, the amount of people. You know, it's assigned eight positions in the pit crew at best, and hopefully we do get that. But initially with the re- you know, one rescue and an engine, which is very likely, um, you're not going to always get all those positions. So um, initially, it's, you know, there's a first firefighter that walks to the door. Early recognition of whether this, this is a pulseless apneic patient is paramount. And then compressions immediately after. And so generally, that's that first pipeman that walks through the door, as well as myself or anyone else who can get hands on the patient, really determine how we're going to proceed. So that, you know, initial continuous compression start at that point. So within seconds, there's somebody um, providing compressions that don't stop, right? So we're we're really working towards that continuous compressions with limited pauses no greater than 10 seconds. From there, generally speaking, and I think this is where preparation comes into, one of the most important things and one of the things that I think makes this situation most successful is having somebody, in my instance, most of the time it's the the engine lieutenant who has the, the tough book and is gathering information on the side as well as documenting things that we're doing. This creates a clean timeline of of events. Um, It keeps things organized and keeps my hands and my my mind free to kind of go about assigning positions after that initial firefighter starts those compressions. So then, you know, I'm dictating to the driver, potentially, who's at the airway at this point. He's looking to put on end tidal nasal cannula. We're looking for capnography almost as soon as we can start compressions. So this is... This is happening kind of at the same time, and that's the goal is to get that capno line on, get those compressions started, passive oxygenation, and the pads are going on with, for early defibrillation. That way, we're ready to analyze that rhythm and make a decision whether we're going to defibrillate or not. Kind of bouncing around a little, but I, I think maybe that paints a little bit of a picture of how things are starting. And from there, you know, there's another paramedic on scene with, with, out of my truck. Um, this gentleman or, or lady is looking for IV access, um, IO access if necessary, and making that determination relatively rapidly how we're going to proceed. From there, we start considering how we're going to move down this line of the Lucas, right? And so all this happens within the first maybe 15 or 30 seconds. This is a very, you know, it's a very quick, and that's where preparation comes in. We're looking to initiate all of these um, elements, and then we start thinking about Lucas and how we're going to proceed from there. So from that point, generally speaking, because, it, and this is different for everybody, um, you may have someone assigned to the Lucas specifically. It may, it, you know, it may not be the drivers at the airway kind of looking for that situation um, to start. Generally speaking, I have the Lucas with me, a lot of times because I walk in w- with it. It's a piece of equipment that I just grab and I unzip it as soon as I walk in. And in, in some instances, I can unzip it and pull out the uh, the plate prior to even entering the residence, which having that in hand is kind of a big deal. And or at least with the thought process of moving forward, getting that into place sooner than later is, is ideal. All right. So now that we've kind of discussed getting through the initial steps of getting all the all the players in play and all of the elements in play, we, we have to really kind of discuss some, some important things that 
are being considered during that time frame, right? So generally considered by the rescue lieutenant who's kind of overseeing the, the operations, right? You're making sure that compressions are done appropriately. You're making sure that IV access or IO access is, is getting completed. You're managing kind of how things are getting documented as, as well as also with those things come rhythm checks. Um, and during that first rhythm check, we're, we're determining whether we're going to defibrillate early or not. You know, this is this is that first opportunity where we can really take a moment and, and make sure that we're making the right decision. And defibrillating early on into this event is really a big deal. If we if we need to do that, then that's that's going to be where we make a big difference. Also, because all these things are happening simultaneously, hopefully we're get, we've got access and Access nowadays is very, with the, with the implementation of the drill, almost, it's almost a guarantee in a sense. We spend a lot of time with a lot of sick people and finding IV access can be difficult, but you always have that drill to use as, as an implement to get that IV access or that IO access in this so case. Crews rarely have an excuse for not, for not having access. Sure, you know, so there's, there's, a, there's a big emphasis on taking a look, seeing what you can see, and if you can't find anything peripherally, then it's probably a good move to just go to that IO. Now it isn't the you know the, the most optimal access for epinephrine which is kind of where we're going with this is that early epi. But getting that epi in before earlier than later is also paramount in, in patient success, right? So we want to get that moving relatively quickly as well. Sure. I've I've heard Dr. Pruitt comment on that multiple times about early epi and again, early recognition of those shockable rhythms and early defibrillation will probably be the patient's best chance. And then as far as recency of arrest, that kind of stuff. And I, I know we're not talking about pediatrics today, but uh, the importance of that, that first dose epi and that immediate CPR is, is huge. That, that really is one of the things that you look at the studies that show survival rates or ROSC rates in pediatrics, and it's that early epi is, is, is just invaluable. And Jeff's right. Having that having that IO drill is uh, it's invaluable. And to you know to bounce off on that, and you know this isn't maybe common practice, but um, more more lately than ever, you know if you're able to get one IO, you're able to get two, and to have two points of access immediately, that that kind of plays a role, and will actually lead into to medication administration later. But um, that having those multiple points of access is kind of um, very helpful, and and streamlines kind of things how move they move from there also. So now I'm, I'm thinking back to when we were initially top pit crew and whatnot. They always told you to wait for that first three cycles, the full six minutes, before you consider advanced airway. Is that something you do as a standard practice? Or if you have all your other bells and whistles checked off, are you moving towards that? And do you have a preference, LMA, ET tube? So I think when we started, you know, we really kind of followed that, that uh, model to a T and and we found ourselves kind of standing there for a moment and not really moving forward in the progression of things and after that uh, the positions are established the, the Lucas device is in play we've checked you know the rhythm and defib if we needed to we've got access and we're you know administering epinephrine that airway is the next most critical thing that we need to do immediately and if we can do it sooner than later, um, it's something that we do do. And generally speaking, in this perfect scenario that we've talked about, kind of where things just move fluidly and in succession, you can get to the airway relatively quickly, probably within the middle of the second round of CPR. Um, and generally speaking, if, if it's available, we've got the Lucas. Now we've got people kind of in a position where they're waiting to do things. And we'll do things when the time is right, 
However, if they can, if we can establish that airway sooner than later, then we'll do it and, sure. and do most of the time. That's how it generally works. Um, as far as airway is concerned, anymore, the, the ET tube is kind of, I like that we have that in our, in our tool bag, but the LMA is kind of what things have moved to, generally speaking. Um, it's, it, it again falls into that seamless streamline progression of how things go. It's very easy to do. Any basic on scene can assist with that and or and or do it and it just gives an option um, beyond just the et tube and tying up one of the medics who could be you know performing other tasks and i encourage rescue officers and and engine officers to have their 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 pipe men or their drivers use these lmas i think it's important that uh, we all stay proficient in this in this task i think from from the realm just to chime in from the realm of quality assurance that um my biggest overarching thing is thinking back to earlier days as a paramedic where the pride kicks in for that medic. And so you're looking at prolonged intubation attempts and prolonged amounts of time where the patient is, again, without oxygen. So I would hate to think that we're contributing to that anoxic injury that the patient may have, you know, ultimately in the, uh, in yeah. the emergency department. Especially in those early days, you'd stop compressions, you'd stop ventilation, so everything halts. And then, yeah, it's not what our standard is, you know, one, maybe two attempts if you feel that you can accomplish that. And this is a concurrent with compressions now. But back then, yeah, it was not uncommon to see, you know, 10 attempts with two different providers over several minutes and maybe some moderate compressions with some ventilations in between. And I'm just getting back to like Clint and I's role in these codes. So Jeff will have accomplished most of all this stuff within the first few minutes. It sounds like a lot to do, but I know that these guys are knocking out all these critical interventions uh, within that first six minutes. Everything's usually done. Clint and I just, you know, since our geographical position's not in District 5 or wherever, you know, we're coming across town, so we're, we're arriving late to the party. And, you know, you know when it's, it's you walk in, and for us it's kind of not that we're going to take away Jeff's scene because you're the LT, you're in charge of this. You know, our role is what can we do to help you? And at that point, we now we're carrying some tools in our in our truck that are making these these codes, you know, even even easier for crews with the with the ventilator that we now have, um, ultrasound that we carry. It's kind of making that patient care uh, decisions a little little different. Yeah, and I wanted to throw in my own little aside, just considering uh, the 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 current issue we have with everybody's concern with Corona PPE, all these kinds of things. Just to reinforce that on those nine echo, those confirmed nine echo calls, everybody's down and dirty in an environment where our exposure our exposure potential is higher. So we still want everybody in full PPE for these codes, especially like Jeff was saying. If we get into that airway, this is the opportunity where the potential to aerosolize droplets is definitely increased. So if you have somebody in there intubating, whatever, wouldn't hurt to have those goggles on and the face mask. But uh, again, yeah. just, just to reinforce, that's that's what the, the posture is right now to keep everybody protected. And intubation does aerosolize those droplets even more than the superglottic or extraglottic LMA device. So in our current situation with this, you know, COVID-19 preferred Definitely, airway is going to be the LMA. I couldn't agree more. And just, you know, again, I think that's an argument. I can't say I was always in that camp anymore now. I think it's it's cleaner, it's easier, and at this point, it's safer. Um, it just makes sense. Yeah. 
And we, you know, we don't want to make this a diminishing skill where, yeah, my last intubation was three years ago, my last intubation, or did two last year, whatever it might be. Sure. You know, we still want our guys to remain proficient, but not at the expense of a patient, uh, uh, patient care. Exactly. So since we're on the topic of airway and kind of, you know, those are all great points. Once we establish that airway, though, now we need to really consider what we're doing with it. And there's a few things that need to be done. It, you know, we got capnography on the patient. We're doing, you know, passive respirations with a mask possibly while we're kind of moving through um, critical tasks. Well, now we're at a point, we've got an airway in place. We need to reestablish uh, that capnography. And a lot of times adding that prior to even inserting your LMA, that becomes common practice. You've, you fit the LMA with that capno line and then insert. You don't miss anything. And if the next person comes and he's there with the bag and just applies it, it doesn't get forgotten. So that's something we try to do as well. You know, keep those things together. It's almost, you know, you take one out, you have to take the other out, you apply it, then you establish your airway, and then you just start bagging. Now, in doing that, now you do have to switch the lines because, you know, um, you want to get the reading off of the correct line. But having it in place is kind of mindless um, in a sense. And, it, and if, it, if it's already taking place, then it's, it's just done. You know, capnography, we can go into some detail about it. And I think maybe a little bit more down the line um, as we keep talking, you know, there'll be some more points to hit. But just some kind of over, overriding thoughts, I guess you could say, you know, this is very predictive of ROSC. You can predict to an extent acidosis, uh, ventilation effectiveness. And most of all, you know, it's the gold standard for tube placement. Are you ventilating this patient appropriately? Do I see a flat waveform or do I see a nice continuous? Correct. And are you getting a numerical value with this? Because if, if you don't, oftentimes you don't have placement correct. And there needs to be an adjustment somehow. Correct. Um, we're, not, we're not satisfied with just seeing that continuous. Exactly. And this is, this is way big for ET tubes. Uh, making sure you don't have that gut placement, but for your LMAs, it's the same thing. We, you know, we're doing this for a reason. We want to make sure we're doing it correctly. So, Jeff, you've confirmed you've confirmed your placement. You have good waveform. You have good values. You know, good good quantitative capnography. What's going to tell you that you that you might think? And again, we're going to get into this a little bit in a little bit, but that your patient is acidotic. And what are you going to do to to resolve that? Or what can you do through your ventilations? Initially, if we're we got we've got this capnal line on, so generally speaking, you're going to have a low capnography uh, or a, a low end tidal reading on these patients. And it, if it is high, the, there's some things that you can kind of consider. So one of those being is this a respiratory arrest leading to cardiac arrest? You got a you know a high end tidal of these folks with COPD. Maybe it's an asthma related event. There you know they air trap and and you. You see, and if this is early on in the event and you see that that capnography is super high, there's a pretty high index of suspicion that this possibly could be a respiratory component, uh, which kind of leads you in a, in, in a direction of how you're going to go with that. And in situations like that, you know, a high end title, you would, you would bag a little bit quicker to try to get that, that end title down a little bit to that 35 to 45 mark. And if we can kind of get to that point, then, then that's where we want to be. But more common, you'll have a low end title. So, Jeff, uh, from there in the realm of uh, keeping our capnography and reading, so you've placed the tube and you're not getting a waveform or you're getting a dotted line or a flat line. How do you like to troubleshoot those? I think initially you troubleshoot the connection point. 
um, into the life pack itself. You, those can either be over tightened or under tightened, or even moving more towards the end, the working end of the, the th- maybe the the tube is crimped or or pinched off somewhere or tied in a knot. You know, things like this happen. I think you look at those things first, kind of move down the line, and if you do it systematically, you can kind of figure out those things relatively quickly. Also, you want to you want to consider some issues. You know, if you don't have any, if you're not getting any waveform or any uh, or any numerical values with this cabinography, maybe your your airway to, your airway is clogged somehow. You know, did this person you know is there emesis in there? Is there blood? Um, those sort of things, which would require you to suction and and make those adjustments as well. Did you check the person's airway? Is there something there? You know, what were they doing prior to to the code if the information is available you know it could be a choking call that led to this or you know one of those things and then moving forward if it doesn't work try different um, equipment you you have more than one lma you can add air you can take air out Uh, you can also adjust your tubes or or, uh, your lines and change your 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 capno lines um, and move forward that way as well and generally speaking you'll be able to overcome any of those issues pretty quick and efficiently by doing it that way. Sure, sure. And I think I think the the overarching thing with with this and with airway in general is we like continuous quantitative capnography. We understand that 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 really is the gold standard for confirming where our tube is placed and whether it's placed correctly and um, we're not satisfied with no value and we need to troubleshoot and figure it out. If you need to go to back to your old clinical lung sounds misting in the tube, what have you. As long as that stuff is documented and you're able to verify those things, it's not the end of the world, you know, we'd prefer that capnography, but again, we can go down a whole ventilation respiratory issue uh, wormhole with that. Absolutely, and using your tools, like you said, you yeah. know, yeah. listen to lung sounds, you know, those are basic skills and basics, basic BLS is what's going to make the difference in this event ultimately anyway. Yeah, yeah, and we don't want to lose sight of that. Again, like we haven't interrupted chest compressions. So what we've done is we've we've laid the groundwork here on this on, on Jeff's code. He has assignments for continuous chest compressions. He's got the airway covered. He has access. He has early defibrillation, early epi. We're continuing to monitor what the monitor looks like every two minutes when we take our pauses. We're beginning to evaluate different things. So we see different circumstances, different presenting rhythms, different things leading up to these cardiac arrests, and that's how I'm gonna kind of digress and segue over to Captain Ferrando here, who's going to uh, kind of take us into the various presenting rhythms, possible causes, and that kind of stuff. Take it away, Kevin. All right, thanks, Clint. So I think one of the, the I think more common rhythms that, rhythms that we see is probably a PEA or a PEA going to an asystole or an asystole going to a PEA. You know, it's I don't want to say there's an easy algorithm to run, um, but it definitely keeps us. Uh, it's a little bit more more the flow of an asystolic code is is pretty much our con- continuous chest compressions and epi. So real quick, how our new guideline is structured with, as it pertains to asystole, uh, some of the no's, uh, no more Narcan during um, a code, uh, no more D10 during a code. So there's just no efficacy shown that those are beneficial to these people, even if it was the causation of, their, of a possible code. We can address that post-ROSC. Another big highlight to the new guideline that we're working under is if it's an unwitnessed arrest, 
and it's an asystole upon your arrival and it's a sustained asystole with no changes throughout, we are now DCing at 20 minutes without an MSEP call. And so I've been through a few of these already. Uh, the first one is very um, surreal, you want to say, because it's just not something that we're, we're not used to not calling that the you know msap consortium doc for those dc orders at least getting that you know that medical direction that you're we're so used to uh really to to kind of drive it home uh the guideline is is nice it gives us a lot of that anonymity now where we can make these decisions uh as far as uh what we're kind of looking is for the asystole arrests or the pea arrests just like jeff had said it's going to be you show up on scene you're going to start your you start your treatment uh early epi you know, IV access, early epi, continuous chest compressions. We're minimizing those pauses of, of 10 seconds or less, hands off the chest or Lucas off the chest, whatever you want to call it. Um, these are giving the, these, these individuals, these patients, the best chance of survival. So I just want to go over the H's and T's. Uh, this is something that we're going to be looking at or thinking of with every pulseless arrested patient that we have. Um, I'm just going to read down the list. So, uh, you know, our first H's will go hypoxia, hypovolemia, hypothermia, hyperkalemia, um, and you know how we're going to treat those H's is, so if it's hypoxia, that's that respiratory, um, this person, that respiratory arrest will always lead to that cardiac arrest. At some point, your heart will stop if you're not getting oxygenated. So is that what caused it? Was this a COPD uh, event? Was this a um, severe asthmatic attack, asthma attack or an anaphylaxis? You know, and that's going to kind of lead us down different treatment courses too. It's, you're going to be thinking MAG, um, you're going to be thinking other medications that are going to be able to maybe open up these smooth muscle relaxants. It's going to get this patient that, that, that oxygen they need to get that heart going again. Uh, as far as hypovolemia goes, you know, that's that fluid loss. And so is it, is it a pump problem because they just, they have no volume. So that's when we're going to give these 500 CC boluses to get that, uh, to get that, hopefully that volume up, get that heart, something in that heart to actually pump against. Uh, as far as hypothermia, you know, we, we'll see a couple of these a year. These are the ones, you know, that maybe an individual outside who, uh, you know, arrests. And these can be tricky because you don't know if the hypothermia caused the arrest or if they arrested and then they just happen to be in a cold environment. Uh, so we're going to treat it a little differently. They're going to go a little bit slower. It's going to be that extended pulse check because they may have a pulse. They may have that, that it might fool you into thinking that it is a PEA without a pulse. So we're going to be looking, listening, or we're going to be feeling for 30 to 45 seconds to see if we can get that. Um, everything changes a little bit with a hypothermic arrest. We're only going to defibrillate once um, and we're only going to be giving epi once. And now we will more than likely transport these individuals uh, even if we do not get that ROSC that we're used to, uh, just because we're not going to be able to efficiently or successfully say, you know what, this person is, uh, it's the, how's it go? We're, you're cold and you're not dead until you're warm and dead, not cold and dead. I mean, it's, it's sounds. I I was going to piggyback onto that. Dr. Pruitt uh, has told us that the, the hypothermic patients seem to be the ones that benefit the most from ECMO where she's had that hypothermic patient going to rest in front of her in the ED they have that patient on ECMO and she's talking to the same patient uh, in the ICU the next day. So there's a lot of potential for good outcomes in those patients. So all the more reason to transport them. Absolutely. And I know even with our arrest patients, the still the passive cooling is still is still not uh, not uncommon. I don't know if it, it's not high on the list of people's minds thinking that I should get ice packs and put them under armpits, but um, it's actually helped with showing positive outcomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
We can also go continue down the H's. The last one is going to be hyperkalemia. So these are going to be people with that re renal insufficiency. So your dialysis patient, you know, the, these patients I have actually seen a lot of times where, you know, we're just not arbitrarily giving sodium because you think of downtime. We're not giving calcium because of, oh, they've been down, they're acidotic. Uh, if you have that high index of suspicion that this person missed dialysis, they, their, their heart was very unhappy because of that cardiac irritability from their potassium levels being so out of whack that that's what caused the arrest. So once you start your ACLS interventions, then you might start thinking out of the box. Like Jeff said, get that detailed history. Oh, this individual, oh, they didn't make it to dialysis yesterday. Now you start thinking, all right. Maybe there we got to get this potassium back in this 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 cell. So we're going to be looking at bicarb. We're going to be looking at calcium. Maybe even bagging in a nebbed um, albuterol. And so these are things that really start getting you. You know, that's as a lieutenant especially. These are things that considerations that you're like, okay, what have we? What are we missing? What are we hitting? And so um, you know, and I've we've I've had I've been present on several ROSCs when we have done some of those more outside the box kind of thinking. Sure. So that uh, bagging in that albuterol, does that go in the normal dosage? So if we look at our, our, our T's of those H's and T's, uh, the tension pneumo, uh, tricyclic overdose, and you're going to look at your uh, trauma. So, and those are all going to lead us down different avenues. Um, not as many T's that we can reverse. Uh, when these people are arrested, even the tricyclic overdose, it's something that's usually when you start seeing those, it might be, uh, if they've arrested, that's already a late indicator. You know, bicarb is going to be the treatment for that tricyclic overdose. You know, if it's a toxin issue, maybe we can start thinking about the, the bicarbs and the calciums. Uh, as far as trauma goes, you know, that that usually is that's usually a volume problem. So we're still looking at, at fixing the plugging the holes, patching, volume replacement. Hopefully, we can we can get a. a return circulation there. And that's going to be a whole nother topic as far as our trauma arrest goes. Uh, as far as the PEA side of it, um, you know, these are going to be a little bit longer codes that we're going to work. So we're instead of looking at that 20 minute of ACE as opposed to asystole, we're going to be looking at 30 minute time because we're just giving this person the benefit of the doubt. They, there's a rhythm that we're seeing electrically. We're just not feeling a palpable pulses. Uh, whereas now the seven eights and some of the other guys in the field, even though seven eights are the only ones who are carrying the ultrasound, you know, we have a bunch of folks that can use the ultrasound. Like, so if I show up and Jeff happens to be one of the guys trained on the ultrasound, I'll hand it off to him. He can get looks at the heart. And, you know, we're now seeing whether this, this heart is actually giving us a perfusible uh, beat, you know, or if this PEA is just a mild quiver of one of the, one of the valves or one of the chambers of the heart, just still trying, but not being effective at actually pumping any kind of blood and giving us that palpable pulse. Uh, I know Clint you might want to tell your story that uh, is kind of leads down that PEA or that cardiogenic shock, which we're starting to think about on some of these PEAs. I've maybe had one. I know Clint's had a couple where the ultrasound was, was invaluable to that. Clint, you want to? Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. And I mean, this was a 46-year-old female who did have comorbidities, came in as a six delta with sevens. And it was a witness arrest in front of our crews. So they knew about the bystander CPR. They knew about all these other boxes that would have or could have been checked for ECMO. Um, what 
confounded these guys was they had an increase in the in tidal value and a corresponding increase in the pulseless electrical activity rhythm they were looking at. So a rhythm that went from about 50 to 80 and then about a 20 point increase in the continuous quantitative capnography without any actual palpable ROSC. They couldn't feel pulses, but when I looked with the ultrasound, I saw what looked to me as a good beating heart, what I would qualify as squeeze. Um, we were able to get Dr. Pruitt on the phone, who was able to give us an order to transport without pulses, um, and this lady ended up walking out of the hospital. And this, of course, you know, is one of the more rare occasions, but again, this really does tie into you guys, your field impressions, and you're that again that spidey sense that awareness that feeling that you know what the situation doesn't seem right i feel like i should be feeling pulses here why am i not feeling pulses and if you feel like if you feel strongly enough about that and even if 7 8's not there if you feel like this person might benefit from a continuous drip sort of a uh, sort of going down the uh, cardiogenic shock route then get that msep on the phone earlier rather than later and see about that and we'll we'll talk more in depth on uh, on our ROSC lecture there about uh, drugs, drug indications. But you're thinking about those pressors, you're thinking why is this, you know, you, you've looked at your H's, your T's, um, what have we tried to correct and it's not working, so then you're starting to think, well, maybe it's a, we need to bump the squeeze on this heart, and yeah. so we start looking at our, you know, our epi drips and our mini boluses. As we're talking about moving from that asystole or we're moving into that PEA rhythm, um, you know, with our PEAs, uh, having the ultrasound does make it a lot nicer because we we were really looking to see if we have that that cardiac squeeze um, You know, we have these individuals who say are perfusing at 30 beats um, Electrically, we're not seeing any squeeze on the ultrasound. We'll work that 30 minutes. Uh, we're following the same um, Medication algorithm as your asystole. It's going to just be your epi every 10 minutes and so uh, what gets a little bit makes it a little bit more hard to decide or DC these calls is when you get this PEA of 60, 70, 80, and now you're working this code for beyond the 30 minutes because you know, you're thinking that there might be a potential ROSC, especially when you have a more narrow, complex, organized rhythm that's electrically showing 60, 70, 80 beats a minute. Um, there again, ultrasound really is huge in this because we can take a look um, and there's almost very predictive. If you see what, what looks like an organized squeeze, but you're not feeling pulses, a lot of times you'll say, all right, where are we at in our last epi? Where are we at to get our next epi? Um, how much fluid have we given this individual? And then, you know, if you're, if it might just be that little epi bump that gets that organized rhythm, and it's not uncommon to see a little bit more con cardiac contraction with that. Uh, however, you know, that next pulse check, that next view with the ultrasound, if you're, you're either going to get a stronger beating heart or usually a decreased is what, I've, is what I have seen. So now you're looking at your third, your fourth pulse checks post, uh, say, an epi administration. Um, you know, even if it's at that greater than 40, we're going to work that code out to 40 minutes. And, you know, at that point, there's probably going to be futile to continue our efforts. So we'll get those DC orders. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, one thing, though, working any of these codes at any level, though, uh, I think Jeff touched on it, but good BLS goes so far. So we're really keeping a lot of this stuff basic. You know, it's it goes back to what we were taught, um, BLS skills, ABCs. So it's chest compressions and it's ventilations. And so everything else we can start, you know, building upon that, uh, you know, really get that detailed history. And maybe that'll change how our, our course of treatment takes place. Cool. Clint, I'm going to have you go into uh, VFib, VTAC. I know that you uh, will give us a, the topic on that and see how we can 
Oh yeah, yeah. Run our calls from there. Well, I appreciate that, Kevin. So, uh, just going to real briefly touch on this because there will be a, a a different podcast that can go specifically and attack cardias. Um, you know, reasons why medications given, medications that could cause it, uh, pre-existing, uh, you know, congenital problems that could cause it, that kind of stuff. But what we're looking at is in the context of cardiac arrest. So, in the cardiac arrest, you've seen your asystole, you've seen your PEA. And now in this instance, we see a, either a ventricular fibrillation or a ventricular tachycardia. Um, you know, uh, most folks know how to recognize these. The automatic external defibrillators will recognize and advise shock. So we see that uh, with, the, with the adult, we're not gonna go down the, the various rabbit holes that we could um, for every patient population, but this just again, just in the adult uh, population, you know, we're shocking at three, 360. And uh, after this, or if we're seeing subsequent presentations in the VFib or the VTAC, we're going to continue to shock. We'll be giving Lido as well. Um, those doses, again, we'll kind of we'll go into detail about those. But the lidocaine being an antidysrhythmic, trying to calm this agitated state in the heart. What you need to know about these rhythms, though, is uh, oftentimes it's created by, um, you know, that acute coronary uh, syndrome, which you can refer to in your guidelines. But in essence, this person has that pre-existing condition, that blocked artery, that uh, probably a presenting uh, uh, STEMI. So this person had that sudden heart attack. And if you're seeing these rhythms, probably means it happened recently. So, uh, you know, our, our thought with these is that these are going to be some of our better chances at, uh, at getting these folks back. Um, but it is going to change change our algorithms, change the medications we give. We're also going to consider things like magnesium sulfate, depending on the, again, the presenting rhythm being a, a tachycardia. And then, you know, we'll talk more specifically about that uh, in, in other lectures here. Uh, again, just to reiterate, as Kevin had said, um, you guys uh, know by now all the details, how far, how long you're going to go with each presenting rhythm and all the other information you get on scene, uh, when you're going to call the doc, when you don't need to call the doc. Obviously, we're not going to talk about trauma rest. That would be a different podcast altogether. I uh, appreciate you guys listening in and stay tuned for the next uh, discussion on ROSC, what to do after.